Well, you can be seated. And you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 if you would like to join us. I hope you have your Bibles uh, with you and open, or you can click them on if that's you. If you're joining us at home, um, you can uh, open up those Bibles and again look at Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing this morning in our teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and uh, coming near the end of chapter 5, and uh, uh, beginning a, in a sense, a a little bit of a turn or a newer uh, direction as Jesus has walked us through this. Jesus has taught us, beginning with the Beatitudes that we began this teaching series with, uh, where he starts in chapter 5, the very first uh, few verses there, teaching us what it means how he, uh, we are seen as Christians, what it means to be Christian. And then how we have a purpose in this world that as Christians, marked by these statements of the Beatitudes, these defining statements that we have a purpose, that we also have a way to live that out. And we're to live in such a way that as he closed that section, he says that we should bring glory to God. He tells us that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and that as we live, as he has called us to live, that we're to do that so that others might see God in us, Christ in us, in such a way that he is glorified, that God is glorified. And so, as we think about that and we Look at this calling, this purpose. We are Christians. We're defined as Christians through the Beatitudes. He tells us that we have a purpose. There's a plan. There's a reason that he has shaped us and formed us into who we are. And that we are to live that out into the world so that he is glorified on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how do we do that? The question then turns to what we are supposed to do. How do we actually live? We know that we are called to be salt and light. We know that we are equipped to be salt and light because of what he's done in us. But then how do we actually, where the rubber meets the road, how do we actually do that in such a way that our neighbors, our family members, our friends, our loved ones will see Christ in us and bring glory to God? This is what he is turning to as we heard read for us from Matthew five seventeen and following. Now, our brother Kent preached an excellent message on the fulfillment of the law and the sort of the exchange between the Old Testament and Christ, or the relationship, I should say, between the Old Testament and Christ and what that should look like. And I would encourage you, if you missed that two weeks ago was where that sermon was from, go back on our podcast and listen to that. But I wanted us to reread that and just have that in our minds, framing our point of reference as we get to verse 21 here in a few moments, because this is Jesus in a sense, essentially saying in verse 17 through 20, this is what I have done. This is how you should see what I am saying to you. And then 21 and following, because of that, live this way. And so those two things are also related. You can tell over and over again, we've talked about this, that this sermon, the, most, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, Jesus had a perfect plan and purpose with what he was saying, how he was saying it, and it builds upon itself. And there's a structure to it, that the structure of it helps to even inform us as much as the words themselves do. And so we begin, or we look back just briefly at the beginning of this text, verse 17. Jesus introduces this teaching 
And he says that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. We have to remember that when Jesus is speaking this message for the first time, he's speaking to Jews. Jews who have lived their lives under the authority and sort of the religious leadership of the Pharisees. And they have lived their lives. They don't have the New Testament Bible as we do today, but they've lived their lives reading and studying and knowing the Old Testament. What is referred to as the law, but what is ultimately what they're talking about here is we would call the Old Testament. And so because of this, Jesus comes to them and he's teaching them. He's speaking these Beatitudes and he's quoting all of these things and saying these things. And they don't really immediately reconcile with the Old Testament. What he's saying, he's not, as the Pharisees would have taught them, just quoting Old Testament scriptures and teaching them from the Old Testament. He's, in a sense, coming with a new teaching. And so in their minds, Jesus knows that he has to, in some ways, deal with the elephant in the room. Because in their minds, they're thinking, sir, you're throwing out everything we've grown up on, everything we've learned, everything we've ever heard. But he tells them two things. And again, you can hear this message more clearly. Go back and listen to it in its uh, totality. But everything that Jesus says and that he's about to say in verses 21 and following, almost all the way through chapter 7, is in perfect harmony with the Old Testament. What he's saying is when he says there that I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, he's saying that everything I am saying is in complete harmony and works with the Old Testament. And in fact, everything in your Old Testament, everything in the law was pointing to what I am telling you, was a pointer to it. This is why, friends, when we find ourselves tempted to kind of get in our Bible reading plans and sort of skip through the Old Testament, sort of move too quickly through the Old Testament because there's some language and some terms and some names and such that we aren't too familiar with. We think, ah, that's probably stuff. I just need to know about Jesus. Well, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And what he's saying here is that I have come to fulfill that. And we need to remember that Jesus is the only one who has ever fulfilled the law. He was the only one who ever could. And he fulfilled the law even to the point of death. See, the law states that sin must be punished by death. And Jesus could be the Savior that we know that he was. And as he's saying these words, even in Matthew chapter 5, he's looking forward to the cross. He was the Savior that he was because he perfectly fulfilled the law. Because he did that. And although he was not due any punishment under the law, in fulfillment of the law... For the sins of all mankind, he laid down his life, fulfilling the law, accomplishing what it, do, it, it called for, death. Of course, taking his life up three days later, which we celebrate. And we get to live in light of, of that. And so, Jesus didn't come to throw out the law, he says. I came to fulfill the law. And so, in verse 21, he, or, he begins to get specific And he starts, he's going to, we're going to work our way through six of these statements, six items of the law that Jesus is going to deal with, in a sense, to illustrate this purpose or this point. Don't throw out your Old Testament. Don't believe that I have thrown that out and that that, that you're not to listen to the law or that the law is not something that we're to to live under. No, but remember that I am the one who could fulfill it. I'm the only one. As we get to this section, the first thing you... Read in verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
So this section of, of God's word is often summarized in this heading under dealing with anger and Jesus dealing with anger and how he looks at this. And as we think about these next, really this statement and the, all the, the, the five more that will follow it, it ultimately comes down to what we think of as character. You know, the word character is thrown around a lot. We aspire to have good character. We want our children especially to demonstrate good character in the face of adversity. We want them to keep working and keep trying. And we want them to be kind and all of these things that we desire. And it is, in a sense, summed up as character and having good character. Well, the Bible has a word for character that defines ultimately what it means to demonstrate good character. And that word is righteousness. See, everything that Jesus is going to begin teaching us is about righteousness. And how righteousness looks and is lived out. Again, because we are salt and light, knowing that we're called to be that, how do we live that out in such a way that it is made known to other people? That is righteousness. How do we live tangibly in the world so that God is glorified? We demonstrate righteousness. The world uses the term character. Ultimately, what the Bible would describe is righteousness. And we desire, we're called to have a righteousness that is no, not our own, but that is growing in us, the righteousness of Christ. And so when we think about the context of what Jesus is speaking about, when we know that he's talking about anger, I um, can't help but think that it is such a timely message for us to hear. I don't know about you, but it seems that anger rules the day. Everyone is angry at someone right now. There is frustration mounting. There is division within our nation, division within our community, often division within our own families. Anger over this decision or that decision. Anger over politics. Anger, so much of it, just frustration. And it just seems to be building more and more and more. How many of us thought perhaps... In the context of our nation, at least, that we might get past election day and then the anger might subside. How foolish we were to think that that date might change the hearts of men. No, anger has just multiplied in a sense as a result of it on both sides of the political aisle. And we have anger again within the context just of families and, and, and friendships that have been broken. And so much anger is everywhere. How do we deal with anger? What is Jesus' instructions to us as people who are called to be the righteousness of Christ because of what he has done? That's who we are called to be. Do we demonstrate that righteousness to the world? Do people who know us and see our righteousness, do they glorify God because of their relationship with us? Or, sadly, are we just like every other neighbor they have, every other coworker they have, every other friend they have, wrapped up in anger and frustration and just visceral hatefulness being spewed out of our mouths continually and over and over again? That's not who we are called to be. And so Jesus deals with this directly, and I think that it is a convicting And a very helpful word for us this morning. So, as Jesus has said, he is the fulfillment of the law. 
And that we are called to live a life of righteousness. That as my favorite coffee mug says, to be salty and lit. How are we to do that? How are we to have that kind of righteousness? Well, we look to Christ and what he says and how we are to relate to the law. First, he says, you've heard it said of old again, just repeating that from the very beginning. And what he's doing here when he, he quotes, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. When he paraphrases that or he repeats that statement, he's quoting what has been often heard by his original hearers. Those that were gathered around him hearing, to this, hearing this message for the first time. See, the people that Jesus was speaking to, they couldn't read the scriptures in their own language. The scriptures were written originally, the Old Testament law at least, that that portion of scripture was written in Hebrew. But the people of God had lost the Hebrew language and now their current language in this time when Jesus is speaking is Aramaic. And so the Pharisees were the only ones who could speak or who could read the scriptures and thus tell the people what the law said, what God's word said. By the way, just hearing that alone, we should pause and give glory to God and thanks to God that we have the scriptures in our own language. We should also be thoughtful of people. There are people in the world, friends, that do not yet have the scriptures in their own language. There are missionaries and people that are working to be able to translate and give them the Bible in their own language so they can hear the word of God in their own language. But Jesus is dealing with this situation because they couldn't. And so all they knew of the law was what was orally taught to them. And what Jesus points out here, he says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, your ear might not pick up on this, but what that quote is saying is not what the law said. The law said you shall not murder. The Pharisees added in this statement of you will be liable to judgment. Now, doesn't initially hit us that way because we think, well, yeah, you will be liable to judgment if you murder. But. What they were talking about when they said that, the oral teaching, was that murderers would be held to civil judgment. That there would be, within the court system, there would be a judgment for anyone who killed. And so the Pharisees, in a sense, through their oral teaching, they had diminished God's word. They had sort of taken it down and they had added in their own sort of opinion or interpretation of what the word of God said. And so Jesus' audience They wouldn't have known what was actually said in the law. They only knew what the Pharisees had given them as an interpretation. And so Jesus says, as the fulfillment of the law, let me teach you what God's word says and ultimately the heart of God behind what he says. See, it's not just the letter of the law that we're going to hear from Jesus, but we're going to hear the spirit of the law. Why did God tell us not to murder? Of course, we can think of the idea that we're to preserve life and care for others. And there's, that's a crime, of course. But there is something deeper behind that. Beneath the surface there as to why and what God means when he called us to not murder. See, again, the original hearers, they're not too different than we were. We think you shall not murder... And we say to ourselves, I'm good. I haven't murdered. They think to themselves, I haven't murdered and I haven't been drugged into court for it. So I'm good. I have held up the law. The Pharisees, they thought to themselves, I know the law and I've done everything according to the law and therefore I am righteous. 
And Jesus, as he gets to the heart of the law, he's going to show us we are far from righteous. And that there is a problem. A problem that only he can deal with. So, this is why also Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you won't see heaven. Because there's a righteousness that the Pharisees had in the fulfillment of their interpretation of the law that looked good to the world. But Jesus is going to show us a righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees or anyone who just holds up the letter of the law. Remember what he says. So he uses the Pharisees as the illustration and he comes to this first law and he tells them that they have heard the commandment that they shall not kill. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. See, the law says thou shalt not kill. We think to ourselves, we haven't killed. As long as no one gets murdered, as long as I murder no one, then we're in good shape. And we've kept the law. But Jesus says that there's something deeper. Anger. Have we been angry? I like to think of it in this way. Have you ever gotten a ticket for speeding? I have. Only once, I think. Maybe twice. That I remember. It's been a while. Praise the Lord. Knock on wood. I've been okay. But here's what I know about myself. I have been speeding quite regularly. I shouldn't confess that probably in public. But that's a consistent challenge of mine. That I drive above the limit of the law. Now, because I haven't gotten a ticket, am I righteous? Am I being obedient to the law because I haven't been caught? Because the effects of the law have not come against me. I have not had to go to court. I haven't had to pay a fine. I haven't had to do any of those things. And so I could say to myself, well, I'm good. I could tell you all that I've never sped in my entire life. And as long as my children aren't with me in the room, then you would never know the difference. You would not know because there's no documentation for those things. And see, this is the law. This is how the Pharisees thought of the law in a sense. They had not murdered anyone, just like all of us, I would believe in this room, not murdered anyone. And so because of that, we might think to ourselves, we fulfilled the law. But Jesus says, no, you haven't because you have been angry. Have you shown or demonstrated anger? If you have angered, if you have been angry... With someone, if you've been angry with your brother, your friend, your family member, you are liable to the same judgment as one who has murdered. Jesus is getting to the spirit of the law here, the heart of God. He goes on to say, You have have you been angry, then you're liable to judgment. Second, whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. What he's saying there, have you had contempt? Towards someone else? Have you thought evil thoughts towards someone else? Has it sort of been in your minds trying to devise a way in a sense to destroy someone else's life? Their testimony, what they've said or how they live their lives to kind of come against them? Have you ever had a co-worker that got the promotion that you wanted and so you made it your mission to devise a way to bring him or her down? All of these things, these are the types of things that Jesus has in mind when he says, 
that we would be whoever insults his brother. If we show contempt towards someone. So it's not just have we murdered, no. It's not just have we been angry with someone, no. It's have we ever had contempt towards someone. Have we ever thought an insulting thought towards someone. And then finally he says in a language or something that that is somewhat challenging for us to grasp. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses his strongest language. The hell of fire is what is due to someone who would say, you fool. Now, again, for us, when we hear the words, you fool, that sounds pretty docile. If you call me a fool, I'll be like, well, yeah, I mean, I am. I tell you all I'm a train wreck. I'm an idiot. That, that's pretty consistent. You're, you're not missing much there. But in the time of Christ, when these words were spoken, when Jesus is saying, if you call someone, you fool, this is deep seated hatred towards another person. This is very strong language. This is almost, in a sense, cursing another person, their name, their identity, who they are. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says this. And he says, if you think this way, if you've had that thought in your mind, or have you ever said these things, you're liable to hell. Not just have you murdered. Not just have you been angry. Not just have you held contempt or had a sinful thought in terms of, Um, insult towards another person. But have you ever cursed another person's name? Have you ever had hatred towards someone? As I read all three of these statements of Christ and consider them, I have to confess that I've been guilty of all three of those. And regrettably, as I look around our world, I look around our local community, even within our own faith family, I see the speech and the conversation so often, this is what is running rampant all around us. This is what we see as commonplace. We turn on the television. This is all we see. Anger, contempt, insult. God forbid you turn on social media. It's multiplied times 10,000. Anger, contempt, insult, Hatred towards other. So Jesus, as he interprets for his hearers, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He reminds them, and I believe he reminds us all, that we are guilty. We are guilty under the law. And so when he says that we have to have righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, we can't look at ourselves and say, well, I've never murdered. I'm like the Pharisees. They also haven't murdered. I'm good. No, because when we hear his teaching on the spirit of the law, we realize that we are guilty. Now, some of you are thinking rightfully, well, what about anger towards evil? Because I see all sorts of evil in the world. I see all sorts of bad things happening in the world. And so my anger is directed towards that. And so do I get a pass from Christ because of sort of the purpose of my anger? I have what I some might term as righteous anger. Well, we need to remember when we think of that is that, yes, Jesus did show anger. We can look in the scriptures and we can see places where he was angry. But in all of the instances where Jesus showed anger and had that type of righteous anger that we might think that it's our purpose to follow after, he did so in a judicial manner. He was over it. He was worthy. He was one who was worthy to look righteously at the situation and judge it and have anger towards it. 
We also have to remember that as we become more righteous, as we look more and more holy, we are going to see evil around us much more clearly. Is it possible, I would suggest that every single one of us who is a parent, when we look at situations that our children are involved in, we have a discernment and an awareness and a holiness about us, I hope, that helps us to see that situation isn't healthy. That situation isn't good, and so we can have some anger towards that situation because we realize what it looks like. Well, as we are maturing and growing more and more in our holiness and looking more and more like Christ, as we look around the world, guess what, friends? Our eyes are going to be more open to the evil around us. We are going to see it more clearly. But what we have to remember in that moment is that we are equally guilty under the same law that we condemn others with and that causes us to get angry because we aren't Jesus, we aren't the righteous judge. We have to realize that we are just seeing the world more clearly because of what Christ has done in us, not because we are smarter, because we are better, because we have anything figured out. We also have to remember as we look at sin and our hearts turn towards anger and anger towards it, We get angry at sin, not at sinners, not at people, because we realize under the law, we just, I hope, felt conviction realizing we all have fallen under the law. We all fall short, as God's word says, of his glory. And so, yes, we are going to look around the world. We are going to see evil. We are going to see things that frustrate us, and we can have begun to grow in anger towards that. What we have to remember in those moments is that what we see is only because Christ has been at work in us to open our eyes to see that. And it is Jesus who is the judge of sin. He is the one who will deal with that. Our greatest effort, our greatest tool in combating the sinfulness of the world is our own Holiness, not anger towards it, but our own personal holiness and righteousness. As the world sees that in us, the Bible says clear, they will glorify our Father in heaven as they see Christ at work in us. We don't know the timing of that. We don't know how that will happen. We don't know all of the purposes of God, but we can rest and we can trust in that promise. Now, Jesus doesn't leave us. In that feeling of frustration or brokenness as we look at the law and the the heart of the law. That whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell, the hell of fire. He doesn't leave us in that moment where we find ourselves hopefully hearing that and thinking, wow, I've messed up. No, he gives us a path forward. He says to his disciples, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Or if the idea of going before the council, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Let your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. So Jesus is saying, what he's describing here is he's saying that when we find ourselves feeling condemned under the law, under the heart of the law, when we realize our own sinfulness, 
That we need to deal with that. And he says that we need to deal with it in such a way that we don't first try to have some religious activity as the Pharisees might have. Go to the altar and make a sacrifice that would have somewhat have atoned for that or show off some religious thing that we're going to do to make things right. But know that we need to deal with those who we've harmed, those who we've offended, those who we've hurt. And so this morning, if you find yourself thinking, yes, I've been angry towards this brother or sister. I have felt contempt towards this brother or sister. Any of those types of ideas or thoughts. What Jesus is saying to you this morning is go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Go and deal with that sin. Confess it and repent of that sin. Don't try to cover it with some religious activity because that's what the Pharisees did. That's how they tried to deal with their offense of the law. They created new laws and new means to sort of show off their righteousness to the world. No, he says, go and deal with that. And then he says, and we know this, that we can be reconciled to him. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He's talking to this idea of judgment This final judgment, if we have something against someone and the judge or an accuser takes us to court over that, that until we deal with that sin, that there's permanence, in a sense, to that judgment. But because Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, this is where we find peace. This is where we find rest. This is the good news of the gospel. See, every single one of us in this room, if you're gathered with us online, I believe that you had to have sensed and felt, as I did, this sense of conviction under the law as you heard Jesus' words, speaking of anger and contempt and insult and all of those things. And we might find ourselves thinking, okay, I need to go and deal with this issue. But we also need to remember what he said. This is why we read this. That he's the perfect fulfillment of the law. That he did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And when we think about his fulfillment of the law, we have to think about his sacrifice on the cross. So we are very aware right now, as we have thought through this and considered this, this text before us, we're very aware of our need for someone to redeem us. To take us out of the prison of guilt. Because there's nothing that we can do to fix that problem. But Jesus, he was the fulfillment of the law. He was the one who lived the perfect life. Where we couldn't, he lived perfectly. Where the Pharisees couldn't, he lived perfectly submitted to the the Father and lived in perfect obedience to the law. And because he lived perfectly under the law, he was not due any judgment from God. God the Father had no reason to judge Jesus. And so you can understand, this is a major theological sort of uh, thing, a doctrine to, to just consider. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not do that because he was due any judgment himself. He did that purely as a sacrifice for you and me, for people who could not sacrifice, could do no religious activity enough. To earn favor with God. To be reconciled to God. Because he was the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. He was the only one who has ever lived. There was a satisfactory atonement for sin. He was the one who could give his life for us. And satisfy the anger. The wrath of God. Against sin. Against people who get angry. Against people who hold others in contempt. Against people who think evil thoughts of other people. 
All of us guilty of that. And so Jesus went to the cross. He laid down his life as the perfect fulfillment of the law. And when he took his life up again three days later, he taught us all that he has victory over sin and death. And so when we now looking backwards on this teaching through the lens of the cross, we can say to Jesus and we can know in our own hearts. And I want you to know this. That as we have found ourselves angry, caught in in sin in some way, as Jesus has described, we can go first and we can reconcile with our brother or sister. We can deal with that sin. We can confess that. But ultimately, after doing so, we can come to Jesus. And we can lay that sin down before Jesus. And having perfectly fulfilled the law and having laid down his life for that sin, he'll say to each and every one of us, go and sin no more. You are forgiven. I have paid it all. It is finished. And so we can give that to him. And I have found that as I give that over to Christ, as I remember his sacrifice on my behalf, that as he reconciles me to himself through that work on the cross My love for Jesus increases. My worship of Jesus increases because I'm so keenly aware of my desperate need for him. And I'm so keenly aware of what he did for me. And as I think about that, the next time I'm tempted to get angry, to think evil thoughts of another individual, to show contempt towards someone, even though they might be doing whatever is the most heinous of things, I think to myself, Jesus paid for that sin in my life. And I worship him. And you know what happens miraculously? This isn't by my own efforts. This isn't something that we achieve. But through the worship of Christ in my own heart, I look more holy to the world. I look righteous. And guess what? All of that darkness that is out there, as I step into the world, there's a little bit of light that comes with me. As I step into the world, there's a little bit of salt that comes with me. And those people that are more often, that have not seen the work of Christ in their life, don't worship Him with their lives, don't understand all that He has done, they see it. And there's a response. And I don't always know that response. It's not something that we have a conversation about. But I can promise you this, I've had conversations enough times to know that there's something going on in the heart's of men and women, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, friends and co-workers, as they watch and they see us pursue Christ and live for Him in such a way, they ask, who is their Father in Heaven? Who speaks to them in the way that He has spoken to? And they glorify Him ultimately. So let us pray. And let us ask for Jesus' help to be the type of people who live as salt and light in the world. And are holy as we let go of anger and resentment and contempt and all of the things that we are so quickly often tempted to turn to. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you teach us the heart of our Father who gave us the law. You teach us that we are not to try and just skate around figuring our way out through this life, thinking we can just get away with things. Get it just, if I can just kind of get through without getting caught. But thank you that your law, your word, 
reaches deeply into our hearts and our souls and yes, reminds us of how weak we are, how often we are tempted as we consider this morning tempted to be angry to have contempt towards others to insult others, to think evil thoughts and I thank you Jesus as we think about these things and we know and I think that just the conviction that that brings upon my own heart as I realize my just how frequently my mind is consumed with those things, those types of thoughts. I thank you, Jesus, that I can lay those things before you. The one who perfectly fulfilled the law. The one who went to the cross to take on the wrath of God for me. So I pray for everyone in this room that we would be able to just lay our sinfulness down. That we wouldn't try to run from it. We wouldn't try to say, well, no one's ever really caught me in it. I've never gotten the ticket for it, but we would just be able to acknowledge Jesus, the brokenness of our own hearts, how often we are tempted to sin, and that as we lay that down before you, we wouldn't feel con- condemnation. That's not from you. You're not the accuser, but we would feel and we would experience your grace and your mercy. We would realize that, yes, you've paid it all. When you went to the cross, it was paid in full. So pray everyone that can hear the sound of my voice right now would just be able to lay their sins down before you and know that that is true and believe with faith that you paid for their lives on the cross. And in doing so, you've given us an assurance of hope. As we consider that, Lord, I just pray they would lead us to live lives of worship, just total worship, and that worship would bring glory to you in such a way that our friends and neighbors would see you in us, and as we have said, they would glorify you, they glorify our Father in heaven. So we just humble ourselves before you, Jesus. We give you, we lay down our sins before you, and we receive the gift of your grace and mercy this morning. We thank you. We do it all in your precious and holy name. Amen. As we close this morning, I just want to give you a couple reminders. Um, You already heard Kent uh, remind you of uh, community night tonight, and I just want you to be aware of that. Um, Also this week, all of our midweek studies are closed. Our men's and women's Bible studies, our student groups are not going to happen this week. But um, in a couple weeks, on December 2nd, you want to know, especially students, or if you have a student, um, is our D-NOW rally back here in this room. And so um, Disciple Now is coming, and we are excited about that. So be here on December 2nd at 7 p.m. Ladies, be here on December 6th. Uh, for your cozy Christmas party. It's something new that we don't have a slide for, but uh, one of our elders, Pat uh, Knight, is uh, uh, excited to begin a new tradition for us here at City Church. Um, And that is on Thanksgiving morning, bring your family to our new field out here, and Pat is going to lead a flag football game. So at 8 a.m., 
Everybody show up. Anybody bring your friends and family. Come out. You, we're not doing turkey trots and all these other things. I don't think this year there's uh, some of those Thanksgiving morning events. Oh, we do have a slide. Looky there. I didn't even know we had that. So very first annual flag football game. All right. At eight o'clock on, thir- on, on Thanksgiving. I was about to say Christmas. I'm getting excited about Christmas. I don't know if y'all put lights up yet, but Thanksgiving morning, eight o'clock. Uh, come out to our field, and uh, we'll have a, a great time playing some flag football. Um, you'll burn off some calories. That way you can go eat as much as you want. So uh, love you guys. If I can uh, pray with you and just encourage you anyway, if I haven't had a chance to meet you personally, I'd love to do that. I'll be down front here. But until uh, Thursday morning, perhaps, or next Sunday, we, or tonight at 5, uh, we'll see you uh, sometime soon. God bless. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.